Hello everybody, happy new year and welcome back to the sexual debut podcast. As always, I'm your host Sophia and thanks for bearing with me as I took a short break to work on my mental health and to spend the holidays with my loved ones. Today is a special episode because we're going to be covering some topics we've not yet talked about on the podcast. I'm joined by my colleague Kalia as we talk about topics like grace, colorism, and sex work. This is a great episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Kalia. Hi there. How are you doing? Good. I'm here with you. Yes. It is 8 o'clock where Kalia is, so I'm super grateful that um, she has gotten up early for the podcast, and everyone listening should be too. Um, Kalia is a colleague of mine from grad school, which you might notice as a trend because I went to school with such amazing and intelligent people, and I'd love to hear what they have to say. I will say that Kalia was a large part in me finally just doing the podcast um, because she said something really sweet in class about enjoying what I have to say, so gave me the extra confidence boost to get things started, but Kalia is probably one of my favorite people that I went to grad school with. Um, she never shies away from having difficult conversations, which is what our program was all about, and I'm all about people like that, and just has such amazing and profound things to say. Um, so I'm excited to have her on, and I will let you introduce yourself now. That was so sweet. And <laughs> not even to downplay uh, uh, like what I said, I didn't just say like, I like what you have to say. Like you consistently are my favorite person in the classes. Aww. And <laughs> yeah, like not even to start it off with like anything negative, but like, you're the only person to have ever called me out in a class. And it was so refreshing <laughs> because like, I'm rarely called out on anything. And it was basically like my, like antinatalism and, um, I knew I learned a new word childism I guess that's Ooh. a new ism, like discrimination against children yeah the whole concept is that children are discriminated against and exploited because they um, aren't as developed and they don't know that they're being exploited um, especially mm. like on social media and stuff but anyways we're not going to get into that but yeah definitely one of, okay <laughs> <You're> definitely <laughs> one of my favorite people too um and I will introduce myself. Um, and the Scorpio in me is screaming because I'm mm. so private. But um, I had to do this because Sophia asked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Kalia. Um, I, like Sophia said, um, am in the dual degree MSW MED Human Sexuality Program at Widener. Did you say what school you go to on here? Or in past episodes, but okay. yeah, Widener. Okay, I didn't want to like, what is it called? Dox you? <laughs> no, no, no. You can totally do that. Okay. Yeah, so I'm at Widener. Um, I'm finishing up the human sexuality degree um, this semester, and then I have a whole year Ooh. MSW. Um, and then after that, I do want to get a PhD. Um, and I don't know if you're going to ask me about like what I specialize in or should I wait go ahead yeah go ahead okay well so my three particular areas of interest are sex work um non-monogamy and black sexuality and also like how those intersect um mm -hmm. and they do a lot so yeah that's what I look at 
and it's super interesting. Everything that Kalia has um, done and presented on in class has been super interesting and honestly adds um, a great perspective because Widener, unfortunately, is a very white program as it stands. Um, so super interesting stuff. I always want to read the actual copy of what Kalia has done. Would you tell me if that wasn't the case? Yes, I would. Obviously, since um, with the whole call out thing, we, that was fun. Were you nervous? I was nervous. I felt so bad afterwards. Um, in class, we talked about we were in a bio class, I believe, and we were talking about reproduction and pregnancy. And um, because we're an online school, there is the forum of like the chat box as well as just like speaking out loud. So the chat box was always really um, active. Yeah. And I um, remember there being kind of a discussion about um, people who don't want to be pregnant and their opinions about kids and I come from a perspective of someone who um, is a, a um, trained or a certified um, doula, um, birth doula, so I'm very interested in that side of things. Um, and people were, as they are allowed to, voicing opinions about like not wanting kids. Um, and there was some slang term, I think, crotch goblins that was used. <laughs> yeah, and I uh, referred to children among many other things as crotch goblins. <laughs> I stopped after the call out, um, but yeah, continue. <laughs> I don't think that you're an anti-natalist at all. Um, there definitely are people who are way more anti-children, but I've never heard of childism and I a lot of people make great points that they are the only people who are not um, brought into the conversation in terms of their own advocacy and um, movements are not always like checking in. I guess you could say the same for some um, disability um, movements, yeah. but I don't think those people would be considered activists, in my opinion, like the autism speaks kind of people. Mm -hmm. But definitely was an uncomfortable <laughs> little situation because I didn't realize I was calling Kalia out specifically. You were like, we oh, like, you're so morally deplorable. And I was like, that was me. <laughs> and then, like the shock on your face because you didn't know who you were talking about. But mm -hmm, for me mm -hmm. specifically, I think that gave me a chance to like step back and look at who I was actually angry at, which mm -hmm. like aren't children themselves. Like, yes, they can be annoying, but I'm yeah. more so upset at like the institution's and um, like the government in general, not providing mm -hmm. support to mm -hmm. um, parents and children specifically, because all of that reproductive and like domestic labor often gets put on single child free women to be free babysitters for people, yes. which, you know, I've, people have tried to subject me to unsuccessfully. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, um, I was glad that someone brought that to my attention. I was able to unpack that. It was it was great. Um, honestly, we both had the same end goal and kind of um, like opinion on the matter, but both passionate about it and maybe from different sides of um, the argument. So mm -hmm. it was a good moment. Lots of uncomfortable moments in grad school, and I'm glad actually to have them because that's where we grow and learn the most. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I want to address that because we were not fighting in class. We just had a moment and we were like, oh, let's talk about it. Because like my concern, I didn't want you to feel 
uncomfortable um, at all. Because if I'm wrong, I want someone to not only tell me if I'm speaking out of my ass, but also why, <laughs> so that I can take a step back and reflect and say, okay, yeah, I can look at this differently. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think so, the yeah. point is that we both are upset at the treatment of either birthing parents or people who have capacity to be birthing parents and the lack of support and the pressure on everybody. So, yep. Yeah. <laughs> A little digression, but so what do you, what led you to studying what you're studying and why do you want to do it? Why do I want to do it? I wish I had like some like deep philosophical answer, but honestly, I, (laughs) um, it's just who I care about. And I Mm -hmm. think it's who is underrepresented in specifically Mm -hmm. curricula because even going through not just like bachelor's level, but like the MSW level, the human sexuality program, like sex workers are not addressed. And if they like how to talk about sex work just isn't present. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanna see more of it. Like I want to be the type of professor that already has a specific class on that or can write a book that others can, you know, build knowledge off of, so. Mm -hmm. And you are starting a book of sorts or like I am where <laughs> you you had a project where you specifically spoke to um I forget what it was in um Dr. G's class but you wrote a substantial paper about it oh yeah um oh what was I talking about okay so in that specific paper I was talking about um specifically disclosure and mm-hmm. how as educators um we often like are mindful about disclosure um, and how that affects learners. But I argue that specifically um, when it comes to teaching anything about sex work, a sex worker should be present and they should be able to disclose the fact that they're a sex worker and show up Mm -hmm. as their full selves to the point that they're comfortable with because that adds to the learning environment. Because if not, they're further marginalized and other people are speaking for us. So yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like I have opinions, so you must have opinions too. But the way in general, the the academic or um, like academic side of human sexuality interacts with sex work and sex workers is surprisingly not as good as you would think it would be. It's exactly what I would think it would be. (laughs) It's like either you're a criminal or it's, oh, poor you. Let me teach Mm. you how to be moral. And it's like, why can't you allow folks to create their own meaning, Mm -hmm. specifically around labor? Because Mm -hmm. newsflash, sex workers aren't the only folks who are um, providing a service via their body, like athletes, the military, like they're using their body to perform labor. But because we have all of these moral qualms around sex sex workers get the brunt of it Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and when you i want to just explain for the audience um who might not be familiar with the concept of disclosure but um specifically in education and in our um case human sexuality education there is a kind of moral ethical not debate but there are differences in how different professionals view um disclosure as either a hindrance to whatever you're teaching or as a tool so for example um there is 
discussion about whether disclosing your sexuality um, or your marginalized gender identity could be helpful or hurtful in a conversation where you're speaking to a group of people who might also share those identities. Um, and I am in the camp that when appropriate and when you're not centering your experiences and using it as a way to influence someone else's decisions, disclosure can be a super powerful tool in connecting with the people that you're speaking to. And I wholeheartedly agree. And I think um, the less represented someone is, I think the more powerful disclosure should be. However, um, I am a firm believer that um, you don't owe anyone disclosure. So Absolutely. if a sex worker is, um, you know, facilitating something and they don't want to disclose that, like they don't have to. And I think mm -hmm. that extends to any area of sexuality. Like no one needs to be in your business and you can take that as your uh, Scorpio spokesperson. <laughs> you are entitled to privacy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's same thing with educating. We're obviously going into education because we choose to want to educate people, but people of marginalized identities don't owe people who aren't like education. Um, so makes me think of that. Also makes me think of, gen z which i guess we both are on the cusp of yeah. younger gen z kind of um expecting and enforcing um celebrities and public figures to be out which i think is icky and weird um yeah the whole idea of queer baiting is interesting i've seen people use that applied to normal regular non-public figure figures i'm like that's not how that concept works yeah um that's that's some fucked up shit it's <laughs> because you should allow folks to define um that not only their identity but like anything regarding sexuality for themselves mm -hmm. so like when you impose meaning onto them like you're looking you're imposing like current paradigms onto them mm -hmm. like especially yeah exactly and if you're someone who holds a degree in anything like obviously you're speaking from a place of authority but you're also undermining their ability to have that agency for themselves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah i could talk about that one forever um so we're kind of veered off into more just chatting about things we're interested in but sorry everyone um, <laughs> no this is what it's we're here for i think this is the best free-flowing kind of conversation so do you have any advice for any prospective um, grad students or anyone in the sexuality field or hoping to be yeah even if you think you know what you know what you're doing you don't um, <laughs> and like that's something you should be comfortable with like yes mm -hmm. you can have a plan but don't be afraid to veer off of it explore new topics um, expand the topics that you're currently interested in to include more things because mm -hmm. um, I think it's very easy to limit yourself in grad school um, mm -hmm. and also like be focused on way too many things at the same time and mm -hmm. really you can just pick one thing that you're interested in so yeah. yeah yeah and also like don't be afraid to share the stage mm -hmm. like no one is your competition like try to collaborate with folks like if you come into grad school with the idea that like you need to dominate people um that's how you make a lot of enemies <laughs> oh yeah and also i mean just kind of even aligns with academia in general the history of academia is to dominate and have 
like pieces of a pie and like believe that you need to have like the most original idea in the world and Mm -hmm. in human sexuality there's so much to talk about exactly and you don't need to be the only person talking about it Mm -hmm. right and it helps to have more people on board with the things you're saying you know collaborating with them as opposed to like fucking up opportunities for other people Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't know that lesson I I think I don't know if that's as common in our human sexuality program but like I know like folks in other programs are like that so Mm -hmm. that's just Mm -hmm. general advice for anyone in grad school I agree with that one which is not to say you have to go into grad school to make friends like I don't know if anyone watches America's Next Top Model there's always a person (laughs) or character because they are characters I didn't come here to make friends well okay yeah but you did come here to you know expand um like a body of work if you are in academia you want to learn and also maybe contribute to that body of work you're not going to do that alone so you know no (laughs) i agree and it's yeah i forgot what i was going to say but it doesn't matter because you covered all great things (laughs) so switching gears on the topic of the podcast and what we're here to talk about um are you familiar with the idea of sexual debuts or when did you learn about the idea of sexual debuts yes so the word sexual debut was not in my vernacular until grad school i just know that i divested from the concept of virginity like maybe when i was 17 just because um, it was tied to a lot of shame and i didn't like that Um, But sexual debut actually came to me by way of Dr. Gilbert, my favorite Mm -hmm. professor in the whole wide world. Um, I think she just said it casually and I Googled it and I liked it a lot more than the Mm -hmm. concept of virginity. Um, And it also changed the way I talk and interpret um, like sexual experiences. So for example, like it got to a point when someone would ask me about virginity, I would say, oh, um, I'm waiting until divorce to use my virginity so until then I'm just fucking (laughs) like just making fun of the concept instead of actually like talking about it but like sexual debut allowed me to like dig a bit deeper and actually think be willing to think about um what it means to have a sexual debut Mm -hmm. yeah I think it means so much or it can mean so much for so many different populations and I definitely didn't grow up religious so the idea of virginity like wasn't super imposed but by at least my like family but people around you're so me lucky because it I was know. imposed on me i grew up um christian mm-hmm. and that was something that like oh virginity must be like protected at all costs um so yeah and then also sexual debut has been helpful in like unpacking like queer experiences as well mm-hmm. that would have been just dismissed if we were just looking at like virginity and like penetration and how mm-hmm. those are like conflated yeah and and like that paradigm a lot of people will be virgins until they're like we'll we'll always be virgins but are, are fucking all the time yeah unless you're you know getting strapped down which <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i don't even know if people who like really subscribe to virginity would count it they'd probably find some yeah way yeah someone once said to me like if you like want strap or whatever like why not just like have sex with a man i'm just like oh god oh god 
I do love when people use the phrase organic strut. I think that's great, especially in like a trans um, context. Oh, okay. That's the first time I'm hearing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Organic strap. I love the change in the narrative, like yeah. using the kind of idea of virginity, but like, oh, like, you know, I have my organic strap. <laughs> I love I love words. I love when we create new words because I think it's boring, especially as human sexuality professionals. Like we have to stick to, you know, like penis, like the very like clinical mm -hmm. terms that are in the textbook yeah and a lot of sexuality educators are kind of the older generation have like stick up their ass about using like the correct um, terms yes medical terminology and which is also racist as hell it is racist. like why can't i say coochie like why can't i say the words <laughs> that are from the like community i'm from and why can't i create new words because at the end of the day um white people are going to steal them at the end of the day and put them in mm -hmm. a dictionary so might mm -hmm. as well continue to create <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. newsflash everyone who's listening we're gonna be talking about race a lot so yes strap in <laughs> strap, <laughs> strap in strap on <laughs> oh yes i was gonna say isolate so many students and it's just ridiculous to mm -hmm. to do i i don't do that and if you know what someone's talking about just use the words they're using exactly it. it's yeah. not that hard context yeah. and I think I know that we're like going in so many different areas with this conversation but like if you have children or you're an educator working with children like yes it is important to introduce like the accurate like quote-unquote term like the medical term but like if they want right. to create something else allow them mm -hmm. to do that as long as they know what they're talking about yeah absolutely and like even in other populations there are very real reasons why using medical or correct terminology could be triggering um, of body dysmorphia for trans folks. Because um, those medical textbooks are behind us. Like I like encountered a textbook that I was still using like labia majora and labia minora, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which for Explain folks- that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, the terms labia majora and labia minora um, carry with them connotations about size of labia so when in fact what we consider the labia minora could be larger for some people than the labia majora mm -hmm. and there could be shame in not you know um having anatomy that conforms to those medical terms so like Absolutely. outer labia and inner labia are a bit more sensitive oh, sorry mm -hmm. a bit more um what's the word like maybe i don't want to say safer but yeah like inclusive than mm -hmm. using labia majora labia minora yeah, and slang words are valid and important and they inform, like, they, they teach us about how people view themselves and others. Um, I was thinking in the trans context of using terms like front hole or um, back hole to um, potentially mitigate some dysphoria um, that might come from using the, you know, correct medical terminology. These and, are new words for me. Mm -hmm. Nice. I'm glad. I love this. Yeah, there's so much, and I probably don't do it justice um, myself, but there's so much to learn from the people that we work with. And medical terminology is not the Bible. Medical <laughs> professionals are not gods. And if we're talking about our context of like 
reproductive health. Um, the people who came up with these terms and these procedures are terrible monsters. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> very racist. Very all the isms. Um, and if we want to be real, a lot of medical professionals could be trained by us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not me. Like, that's not even to be disrespectful, but no. I think that just shows like the capacity for collaboration between human sexuality professionals yes. and all other um, professionals who yes. work on topics that are human sexuality centered. Absolutely, because we get specialized schooling on human sexuality and the doctors, their like, you know, section on these topics are just that a section and a very mm -hmm. long like schooling experience i know that like working in um, hiv testing and um working in um <clears throat> just uh prevention is and also intervention with um stis and hiv and syphilis doctors don't know everything i've mm -hmm. encountered doctors who don't know what prep is what um, yeah <laughs> how embarrassing it is embarrassing for a doctor to not know what that is, but for the listeners yes. who might not know, um, PrEP is a medication that can be taken daily. There are new forms now that are injection, um, but it is basically a medication that prevents you from contracting HIV. It's revolutionary medicine, and there are doctors who don't know what it is. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I can't speak on what their curricula is um, in medical school, but I'm pretty sure they're not doing a bunch of affective processing and yeah. empathy and validating and how to interact with people in a way that validates their own perception of reality. I think they're told to tell people things and they leave it at that. And that's something that is touched on, um, at least in our program. And I'm not getting paid to, you know, <laughs> endorse our <laughs> program, but um, all of that just to say um, human sexuality professionals are valid and needed. Mm -hmm. And I actually, um, there's a quote, I forgot by whom, but it came by way of Dr. Gilbert. Um, mm. Sex educators should be as accessible as porn. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. I love that. I wish I knew who said it, but um, it came by way of Dr. Gilbert, Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert. Oh, it always does. Always the best stuff comes from her. It does. <laughs> and when I say earlier about monsters and being in the medical community <laughs> and gynecology, I am speaking about a specific man named Marion Sims. Yay, um, Marion Sims. Yes. The father of modern up. gynecology and all the racism that comes with it. Yeah, absolutely. He is someone that... Um, revolutionized the procedure of fistula fistulas and repairing them after um, childbirth um, but the way that he revolutionized that was working on um, I believe one of the enslaved women's name was Anarcha um, but there was three that he worked on without anesthesia for many many different surgeries um, and was completely barbaric and how he did that so i recommend you look into that if you haven't um some some side reading yeah and like during that time i'm sure that was completely acceptable and mm -hmm. i know you're probably i think this question goes along with um like if you have any advice to like people in grad school this is not only for like grad school folks but anyone like don't be afraid to question the times that we're living in 
because you know the law does not determine what is actually moral and ethical Mm -mm. if you if if your intuition is telling you something's fucked up then it might just be fucked up yeah you know go with your intuition absolutely um okay i'm so sorry we're so off track (laughs) no 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 this is the whole point i think okay this is great and no need to apologize in this space unless you say something fucked up which i don't think you will you'll call me out Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. So more personally then, what does sex mean to you? I think um, I have the power to create meaning for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think sex can be everything and nothing I want it to be. I mm-hmm. think sex can be a means of making money. I think sex mm-hmm. can be a way to connect with another person. I also think sex can be a means to harm someone else. And I'm not talking about just like sexual assault, but like mm-hmm. manipulation and like having power in a way that may not be ethical. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, did I answer that right? There's no right answer to that question. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't, I think the definition for it for me changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Con- contextually, what's going on and I love asking sexuality professionals that question because we all have such wide um, answers and different things to say. I agree with that. And I most commonly hear the answers that are like affirming and like positive, like have a positive connotation. But I don't think people like they gravitate toward an answer that acknowledges the harm Mm -hmm. that can be um, like gained from like how we attach meaning to sex. And I don't mean that in a sex negative way, but like some of us do fuck for validation right Mm -hmm. and having a space where we can unpack what that means like fucking for jealousy Mm -hmm. or to mitigate jealousy um yeah yeah we get very caught up in like wanting to be sex positive and Mm -hmm. that's a term that i personally am critical of um i think that it came it was born out of a very like real need to um talk about sex in a way that wasn't you know at the time overwhelmingly negative or procreative um or just um in a shaming way and i now believe that we've maybe attached too much to the idea of sex positivity and aren't being realistic um there's a study that i can link um in the show notes about like the hundreds of reasons why or I think it's a hundred something different reasons why people have sex and those aren't all pleasure or like mutual connection they're not all that a lot of them (laughs) are to get your needs met or to exercise power over someone Mm -hmm. yeah I um I think with the term sex positivity yes it did what it needed to do it served (laughs) it served cunt Um, But I do think it serves as a means for folks to um, dismiss or not confront themselves when they're doing something out of something that isn't very positive and they should Mm -hmm. probably unpack in therapy. (laughs) Yes. And it doesn't have to be positive. That's not even what I'm saying. I think it's also been misappropriated by people who want to do um, manipulative or um you know exercise their power in a sexual way Mm -hmm. specifically um you know cishet men shaming women 
or yeah. younger young women usually into mm-hmm. having sex that they don't want to have or types of sex that they don't want to have by saying oh you're not being very sex positive about that are men out here saying that oh yeah oh my god so for the listeners who don't know which you wouldn't because i'm a private person um i've divested from men i don't keep up with what they're doing <laughs> anything that i know about men nowadays I've learned against my will. <laughs> so um, I hate to hear that they're out here doing that, but it does not at all surprise me. No. And I've heard too um, that being used in the context of polyamory or oh, if, yeah. how they want to use it. I'm going to say air quotes here, ethical non-monogamy, which I don't think you should be able to proclaim for yourself that you're practicing. Usually I see that as a red flag. When someone yeah. calls himself an ethical non-monogamist, but I've seen it in that context too. Well, first of all, like I have gripes. I don't know if I've mentioned this in class, but with the term like ethical non-monogamy or like consensual non-monogamy, because that implies mm-hmm. that monogamy doesn't need the qualifier of mm-hmm. consensual or ethical as if everything folks do within monogamy is inherently ethical or mm-hmm. you know consensual. And I also think I, both monogamy and non-monogamy can be used in harmful ways or navigated through in ways that are harmful for people. Absolutely. So, um, I think cishet men in general, though, because of their relationship with power and privilege, mm-hmm. um, regardless if they're monogamous or non-monogamous, they're going to find a way to fuck things up and yeah. harm others, <laughs> which I mean, like, not all men, but like, y'all, y'all know what I mean. <laughs> we don't have to do that qualifier on this. Okay. Part. All right. I don't think I even have that many listeners from that demographic, but if you are, <laughs> this is an opportunity to listen and learn. <laughs> and if you're a man, if you're a cishet man and I hurt your feelings, good. <laughs> think about it. Yeah. Sometimes people need their feelings hurt. I agree. I'm a firm I believer. Agree. I agree. That's where we learn and grow and hopefully can take that from a, a good place and move forward. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't. So then what do you think a good or bad reason to have sex is? Uh, A bad reason to have sex. um, Coercion, if you feel like you need to do it. Um, And when I say that, that excludes like sex versus like survival reasons. Like Mm -hmm. you shouldn't feel bad for doing what you need to do to survive. But if your basic needs have been met, but you're trying to please someone else, I, I would take a step back and maybe not have sex. Um, mm-hmm. A good reason, because you want to. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that does not absolve critical thinking. I mm-hmm. think you should do all things in critical thinking. Mm-hmm. That makes sense for you. <laughs> Thank you. And which, again, is not to say that you can't do things on impulse. Um, yeah, I'm going to contradict myself a lot because I think, again, everyone has the right to create meaning and have their own agency but i do think you should think about it a little bit if not before afterward Mm. and that should guide your decision making how much agency do you think we have um as marginalized people under the current systems like how much of that do you think we can say is just because i wanted to you're asking that with a smile on your face because you know my answer is like very little (laughs) yes Like, there's no way all of us would be acting the way we currently do if we weren't under these systems. I can't, like, I can use my imagination to think about how we would navigate sex, um, but um, 
I think, what was your original question? Like how have the systems impacted or would we act differently? How much agency do we actually have under the current systems as different marginalized people? We don't have a lot of agency, but what I will say is more, I think some people are more inclined to reclaim agency and make Mm -hmm. space for themselves Mm -hmm. than others. And that's a journey for different people that they'll arrive to for different reasons at different times. So. Mm -hmm. And I say that not because, like, it's a bad thing. I'm definitely not a a radical feminist who some scholars say things like all sex is rape for women. I don't believe that. I think that was Andrea Dworkin, maybe. Yes, Dworkin. Yeah. Yeah. Not not what I'm subscribing to. But like you said, being critical. And how much does it really matter if we're doing things because of a system of power or because it comes from a genuine internal drive? Um, I think you can really drive yourself crazy, like thinking about that and trying to tease it out. Oh, yeah. Um, There's something to be said about being brain dead. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's nice. Yeah, no thoughts, just vibes. Exactly. Yeah. It's a fine fine balance and i don't think every act needs to be an act of like rebellion or you know feminism um yeah but being mindful of where those um motivations come from and a lot of them are external unfortunately yeah i think um roxane gay uh mm-hmm. bad feminist she talked mm-hmm. about like yes i'm entitled to um like certain things that wouldn't be categorized as feminist or liberating but as long as I'm able to unpack that and have Mm -hmm. like a conversation with myself and think critically about it then you know I'm doing the best I can under these systems exactly I subscribe to that as well not every obviously she said it in a much much more poetic way but (laughs) oh I mean I think that you said it perfectly thank you Okay, so I think I know the answer to what you're going to say to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, How important do you think the amount of people um, that your partners have had sex with is? It's so important that I think we should replace our names with the amount of people we've had sex with. (laughs) Joking! Obviously, that's a bullshit answer. Um, I, so I have two answers to this question. So first, um, it's not important at all. Like, I think the quality, the qualitative data of um, your sexual Mm -hmm. experiences are more important. However, what I do like to do, um, I have a spreadsheet in Excel of every person I've ever been with, and I do collect like data. So like, not only like the sexual data you would imagine, but like their Hogwarts house and <laughs> stuff like that. So like only if you're interested in attaching meaning to that number, um, then it doesn't matter at all in yeah. my opinion. And I like the idea of, cause I did the same thing. I have a list of everyone I've ever had sex with and their Zodiac sign. <laughs> I should have, <laughs> I should have. I was late to the uh to the astrology game, so but that's all right. It's always so wait, so like out of all the signs, number one, like which one is your favorite? And then how many actually let's not ask a quantitative question, but like which one was your favorite? 
Um, probably Gemini. Um, and okay. there's only one sign that I've not had sex with, which is Capricorn. But I am a Capricorn You're not missing moon. anything. No, I'm a Capricorn moon and rising. So I've had sex with myself plenty and I, I count that. Okay. All right. I think of Capricorns and Pisces as the adults of the Zodiac. Oh my God, really? Yeah. I... And when I say adult, I don't mean like you have everything together, but like Okay. you have a, like a parental energy about you. Okay. Interesting. I have the opposite experience with Pisces, but Capricorn I do. Okay. Yeah. I think of Capricorn and Cancer because I think that's traditionally in, in astrology. Um, Capricorn is a paternal sign and Cancer is a maternal sign. Okay. Yeah. I know that about cancer. Um, but interesting. Very interesting. Yes. Okay. I also, yeah, I think having a list too can be helpful um, if you are exposed to any kind of STI and being able to like pinpoint when it was that you had sex with that person and being able to potentially disclose to them that they may have been in contact. Exactly. And I think for like health reasons, uh, it can be helpful to have that information, but by no means does that number define who you are, define the quality of those experiences, or even um, like, should that guide your sexual decision-making? Like I know folks who like stay in abusive relationships because they don't want that number to get higher. And it's like, damn, chokehold that body count, quote unquote, has on folks is so harmful. It is. And I, um, when I speak to students of mine who are like kids, um, we talk about um, sexual health, obviously. And a lot of people, not even just kids, are surprised to know, and this is me speaking from a professional perspective as someone who has tested people um, and has worked with people who have STIs and HIV or um, syphilis, but People who are non-monogamous, people who are sex workers, people who generally have um, a lot of sexual partners are much better at taking care of their sexual health, using protection, getting tested regularly than people who are in monogamous. And I say that in quotes because the amount of people who are in monogamous Out here relationships, cheating on folks. absolutely, yes. And I saw a lot of people who were in monogamous, at least one side monogamous relationships that um, were exposed or contracted things like syphilis or even HIV because they were under the impression that they don't need to like get tested as regularly Yeah, and I think that goes back, like, I am a slut for Gail Rubin's Charmed Circle. I love So, that like, for folks um, who aren't familiar, Gail Rubin, I think, um, I don't know their pronouns, but they're at University of Michigan right now, but they published um, a piece of work proposing, like, a model of the Charmed Circle where, like, the, I, I think it's the inside are all of the romantic, like, slash sexual um, identities or lifestyle that are protective seen as normative whereas on the outside um, those things are seen as non-normative and like more um, predisposed to discrimination um, I think the more that you are in that circle the more you take for granted your sexual health <laughs> and um, I think that is riskier than folks who are on the outside doing traditionally quote-unquote risky things but still you know engaging in you know, testing and having that open communication. So Mm-hmm.
I don't know if you asked for all that, but like, yeah, that's what came out. I love the charm circle. Um, Gail Rubin is great. And I remember learning about um, their work in undergrad because I was a women gender studies major and it really opened my eyes to a lot of interesting and cool things. It's simple, but it's just so, it's such a great way to conceptualize um, like the shit that we take for granted and who we discriminate against and don't do any critical thinking toward. It's super effective. Um, But yeah, people are always so surprised to learn. And adults especially, like usually I tell kids this and they're like, okay, that makes sense. But adults especially get very surprised to hear things like sex parties and swingers events have testing like or are required that you come with your test results to these events. Like, And honestly, I want to contest that. Mm, okay. What you just said, because I think that is something that younger folks are doing because okay. we're a bit more conscious about that and educated. Um, I have been in spaces where that is not the case. And like they weaponize a lot of um, like misogyny um, to like prevent people from engaging in like sexual health practices. Like for example, mm-hmm. I- I was talking to someone who like regularly throws these like swinger parties and they were talking about how like, yeah, everyone uses condoms. And I'm like, great. So are y'all switching like condoms, like after like each partner and they're like, no, but like, we're still protected. And I'm like, but who's protected and why? And they didn't, exactly. And I didn't, they didn't want to engage in that conversation. So I think in those spaces, like they can be liberatory, but I also think specifically older folks it's just one of those situations like you said where cishet men are taking advantage of sexual liberation quote unquote oh yes oh yes positivity i've definitely heard um from people who have been in both like kink and swinging spaces that the swingers spaces and all like sexuality practices are kind of like the republicans of um yes alternative sexuality world Oh my God, that is the perfect description. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of the like one penis rule or one dick rule um, for people who are practicing what they would probably say is ethical non-monogamy. But... Oh God, this is why we need sex educators. Because <laughs> people are out here just... <sighs> yeah. I'm going to be thinking about the whole like not switching condoms afterwards for a long time you've never heard of that like in those spaces they think um like because again it like fucks up the mood quote unquote um but it's like nothing fucks up a mood more than an unexpected sti or std but you're not being mindful of that because as a man um and i say man because these are cishet men i'm talking about um Mm -hmm. They don't care about anyone's sexual health but their own. Oh, damn. Yeah, I've never heard of it. It doesn't surprise me. And But I'm so proud of like the younger generations um, who are more willing to make it a space where everyone's protected. Yeah, damn. That's fucking me up. I'm thinking about that. It's not surprising me, but I... It's gonna haunt me. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not only like, like the STI, STD thing, like these same folks will like shame the women who are like at these swinger parties and call them like sluts and hoes. And I'm like, what? Oh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think the that's like an older generation. House. 
Yeah. Not so. that it's bad to be a slut, but I, the lack of self-awareness. They're not saying it in a way they're, where it's like reclaimed. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm always um, blown away by cis men. And not in a really? good way. I'm not surprised ever. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> Same. Oh, that's terrible. Ugh. Sorry Jesus. to burst your bubble. Oh, no. No bubble bursted. It's <laughs> been burst. Um, just a new way that I can add to my collection of disappointments. <laughs> okay. All right. So then switching gears a little bit, maybe more personal. Um, what would be your biggest turn on and turn off? Uh, my biggest turn on is someone's voice and just the way it sounds um, and also like what they say. And like, I get the question, oh, like, what can I say to turn you on? Like, I don't have an answer to that question. Um, it just comes to me, no pun intended, but um, I can think of someone in particular, and mm -hmm. if you use your imagination, you know who I'm talking about, but their voice sounds like a harp made love to a saxophone. <laughs> I know. And like, yeah, you know exactly who I'm talking about, and it's, that's the kind of stuff, like, and it becomes to the point where, like, not that I become a pick-me, but, like, all already know like the thing that they're talking about like I can engage in conversation with them and I already know but I'll act like I don't know what they're talking about just so I can hear them talking about it because I want to hear your voice yes I love hearing people talk about things that they're knowledgeable and passionate about yeah um but no I don't listen to ASMR though it's just specifically the person I'm interested in yes that makes sense I mean when you're interested in someone, everything they do is a little bit better. Right? Right? Yeah. And that definitely, um, I think that's a later question that you have, but like so much of like my sexuality is rooted in fantasy mm -hmm. that, um, that that is often better than like any other reality that they could provide, which is fucked up, but it's very true. It's not fucked up. I am looking at a book that I have right now on fantasy that's called Who's Been Sleeping in Your Head? And it's really interesting. Um, fantasy informs so many people's sexuality and a lot of people have fantasies that they never would act on or would want to, but it's just better in your head. For me, it's at the point like I don't want to act on my sexual desires because I know that my fantasy is better than reality. Better than the reality. Yeah yeah definitely I and definitely I think that's why I've become like a bit more I don't want to say sexually conservative because that is not at all the term that describes me but like I I'm not as like like in my personal life as sexually active as I used to be because I know that the stuff I have up here in my head is better than what someone can provide me oh definitely there's no <laughs> limit in your head there's exactly not not corporal um mm -hmm. and I can totally agree with that okay then what's your biggest turn off biggest turn off um goodness um just an uninformed opinion on anything political which like we're going outside of sexuality but like if I ever want to get over someone 
I just asked for their opinion on politics and it's just mm. like a snap, <laughs> like I'm, I'm over you because you probably said something ignorant. Um, what if they didn't? Yeah, and that's the current situation I'm in with the person that you can imagine in your head. <laughs> it's probably backfired. Yes, it really has. Um, so yeah, for in most cases, someone giving their um, like talking out of their ass about politics will turn me off oh, yeah. quickly. Mm -hmm. Big. Oh, and then also like just like not having a voice that I'm attracted to. Mm. Which there's nothing you can do about that, like, but no. that'll. What kind me. of voice would that be? I don't know. I, I again, I can't put words to it, but like when I hear it, I just know I'm not attracted to it. Fair, fair, and you know, totally relatable. <laughs> and so, do you have a like interesting or bad or a really good sexual debut story? And they can be multiple Came stories. Prepared for you. Oh, yeah. I have um, I have two stories I'm going to give you. So the first one, um, in terms of sexual debut, um, I didn't even categorize this as a sexual debut until quite recently because of you know um, compulsive sorry compulsory heterosexuality is that the mm -hmm. word I'm looking for? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So um, when I this is the first time I'm even saying this out loud. That's why I'm. So, <laughs> um, when I was, I want to say in like the second grade, there was this girl, um, she lived like a house down from me. So like not next door, but like the next house, we'll call her Valerie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we became friends just out of proximity. But then one night she asked me to, you know, spend the night at her house. And she said, okay, but if you do, we have to have sex. <laughs> and like looking back obviously there's like a little bit of coercion there but like mm -hmm. being young and curious I was only in the second grade I was like okay so then like I had no concept of what like sex was but I just knew that it was like two people being close right so um yeah so it was basically just like some very like misguided like dry humping <laughs> in her bed and it happened like twice um that time that I like the first time and then like a, another time and then I eventually moved to a different neighborhood but like I saw her in high school we just never talked about it and I mm -hmm. feel like that sort of queer experience is more common than people like talk about Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't get coded as a sexual experience because of um, compulsory um, heterosexuality. Yes. I was going to say, if you didn't, um, that hopefully those listening can see themselves and feel less alone. Because I know I had an experience just like that, that I didn't tell or say, like, didn't tell anyone aloud until college. And when I did, it was so nerve wracking that I like, felt like I was going to throw up and just was so anxious about it. And then the person who I told was like, well, yeah, I have one of those too. Like so many queer people do. Yeah, but like a lot of straight people do. Like people oh, who, yes. Oh, yes. and that's not to say that they're not straight because I do think like, what what is it? The OB something model, like orientation, behavior. Oh yeah, identity. behavior doesn't equal. Identity. Yeah, 
I still think those people have the right to identify as straight or whatever, but I don't think because of their straight label, they're willing to be honest about those experiences that they had, especially when they were younger exploring their sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's something that like I kept in like the peripheral of like my brain for a very long time, because again, I grew up Christian and like the message was like man and woman period. And like, I didn't question it, but like, it was always like subconscious for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it also did a bit of harm, to be honest, because anything that was like attraction got coded as either friendship or jealousy mm-hmm. with other women. Yes. Yeah. I homo or sleepovers are extremely homoerotic spaces. And I might say something controversial, not in our field, but, um, like you said, like straight people have sex with people of the same gender all the time. And those people are still straight. Um, that would be like saying if someone hasn't had sex yet, that they are automatically like asexual or yeah. the classic, like if you are bisexual and haven't had sex with someone of a similar gender, then like you're not actually bisexual, which we know is not true. Someone, I think it was a TikTok, someone was like, uh, you like men and women, but you're single? You're not bisexual, you're by yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. I haven't seen that. Yeah, uh, but again, to your original point, yeah, I think um, queerness, if it's not an identity, I think it would be my hope that more straight folks would be willing to engage with queerness and look at their experiences through that lens without their straightness being threatened. Yes. So that they could, so there's more like representation or at least they could have conversation about some of the gray areas that they've um, participated in. And people Mm -hmm. would be more accepting of like the grayness that is in straightness. I like you can't see me that I was shaking my head vigorously (laughs) straight people like I want like them to have the ability to have sexual exploration and for it to be not threatening to whatever their sexuality ends up being or how they identify everyone should be able to experiment sexually and have it not threaten like their own label of sexuality yeah and also like people being more understanding and accepting of other people's process and not invalidating them based on that. I would love to see it. Yeah. I see a lot of people, even in more progressive, like sexuality and gender spaces, calling people who have had gay sex, like, oh, that person's gay, they're closeted. And that to me feels violent and like limiting and wrong. Okay. Can I go off for a second? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so like the whole concept of closeted, like, I disagree with as a concept. Because first of all, no one is in the closet. No one is in the closet. You're in your fucking house. (laughs) And people are trying to intrude on your house. Yes, Mm -hmm. people can, you know, walk up and knock on the door, ring the doorbell, but you are by no means obligated to answer the door and say hello. And what I mean by that is like, if someone asks you about your sexuality or your sexual experiences, this goes back to disclosure. You don't owe them shit. 
you're not in the closet you're in your house and you're Mm -hmm. allowed to let in who you want to let in and you don't Mm -hmm. owe anyone that explanation yes so like when it comes to like privacy and queerness i think we should abolish the term closeted i agree people are just private and sometimes it's not safe for them to step outside of their fucking house yeah absolutely i there's a great article and i'm gonna have to find it but it talks exactly about what you're saying and it criticizes the coming out model and introduces or suggests um the inviting in um model and treating sexuality like something that people who you trust and you feel are worthy of knowing that information about you being able to be invited into that yeah and i think that's also more inclusive of the idea that when you talk about coming out like you're never fully out because the assumption is that you're straight or whatever within the charmed circle you're coming Mm -hmm. out in every new environment that you're in and Mm -hmm. I think this extends to not only like sexual identity but also like being a sex worker Mm -hmm. right like you Mm -hmm. not owing anyone disclosure but you can let in folks that Mm -hmm. you feel comfortable with and that extends to like even um like non-monogamous folks and all the folks who are marginalized Mm -hmm. yeah send me that article I want to read it I will. It's a great, it's a short one and it's great. It's basically saying exactly what you're saying. Thank you. So did you have a, um, another? I did. I did. This is going to be a long ass podcast episode. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Um, actually I'm not apologizing. You all have the benefit of listening to me. (laughs) So the second one, um, we're actually going to get into race and colorism. So put on your seatbelts, everyone. So um, this would be in the more traditional sense, like what people would code as like, oh, like losing your virginity, but like sexual debut. So Mm -hmm. just to give a bit of backstory, there was this girl, I'll give her a name, um, uh, Lucy. Okay, Mm -hmm. so her name was Lucy. We met in the eighth grade. She was nice to me. Mm -hmm. Um, At this time, I was still, like engaging with like straightness, even if it's not who I was. And there was this boy, we'll call him Pencil. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he, um, they ended up dating and it bothered me because I assumed that, um, how dare you not be attracted to me, Hmm. right? And that was rooted in colorism. Okay. Um, She was dark skin, they were both dark skin, but, I by default thought that I am the preference like why are you not with me now obviously I didn't have words like colorism in my vernacular so I didn't I couldn't conceptualize what was happening in my brain but also at that time I couldn't code it as jealousy because Mm. um how can you be jealous of something that you're entitled to right Mm. so um freshman year rolls around and I have this boyfriend we'll call him Jake which is a very white name, but he was not white. All the people in my story are black, (laughs) dark skin as well. Um, And um, here, like the time rolls around where we're talking about like sex and we want to have sex and whatnot. So then we go to the park and Pencil is there. At this time, he's still with um, Lucy. Mm -hmm. Um, Like their relationship carried over into eighth grade, which again I was still jealous of because like wow like it's lasted this long well um so the three of us were at um 
Jake's house and Jake is having an issue um, like entering me, right? Because we don't know what's going on. I've never even watched porn before. So I'm like, call pencil into here, <laughs> into the room. <laughs> and um, for those of you who are ahead, yes, this turned into a threesome. And I was like, he can show us how to do this, Very right? Nice. So, and in that moment, I just felt so powerful. Mm. And even in hindsight, I think like sex became a means by which I could reclaim power, even if it wasn't power that I was entitled to, like it was someone else's friend. Um, mm. But still, um, yeah. So like we had sex, it wasn't particularly good, but <laughs> I just remember from that moment on feeling like I had finally won up Lucy. Mm. Right. And I don't think I, until I learned the word colorism, I didn't realize that like my sexual debut was like rooted in my need to reclaim the power that I thought was taken from me mm -hmm. via some average, in my opinion, at that time, like average dark skinned girl, like getting what I thought that I was entitled to. Mm. That's super interesting. Yeah. And like, this is the first time I'm speaking about it out loud, mm -hmm. but um i think if more light-skinned particularly biracial light-skinned people specifically women were honest with themselves about like these experiences and our relationship with colorism there would be a lot less like contention within the black community because like mm -hmm. there is jealousy but there should be a safe space to unpack jealousy and what it's meant and what it has done um and also what it means to be a preference, right? Because you see this more in like interracial relationship discourse. Um, mm. But like being the preference doesn't automatically mean that you're treated well, because like after that, like sexual debut, I was still like, they told the whole football team. And then from then on, I was considered a hoe. So <sighs> yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot there that I just put out into the world, but like, I think um, it's a conversation that needs to be had about like colorism, a lot of sexual debuts being rooted in wanting to be desired and having power that really isn't indicative of power, but wanting validation from the patriarchy. Absolutely. It's one of the few places that we can exercise that kind of power, so to speak, over other people and of course, of course, everyone grasps at what they can with power. And I appreciate you putting it out there because I'm sure people can relate in different contexts in different ways. And I don't even know if she ever found out. I think she did like during our senior year of high school, but she never brought it up to me. And I'm sure she's fine. And like, she's like kind of Instagram famous now, but oh, nice. <laughs> the person who's, <laughs> um, but um, I think if I could go back in time, I would want to initiate a conversation with her mm. about that and like be honest and let her know and like also like repair a lot of not just that situation, but friendships that were ruined um, by colorism. Mm. Because I think the narrative for a lot of light skin, light skin biracial people is that, oh, they don't like us because we're light skin. It's like, mm -hmm. no, especially at that age, you don't have the word colorism but 
you're just not being welcoming of dark-skinned folks in real time processing the fact that they're being discriminated against, especially in terms of like desire and the politics of desirability. Mm. And we need to be more welcoming of that in the black community. Yeah. Do you think that she knew? I think she found out her senior year. Okay. Yeah. She like, never she addressed knew. it though, because I think like doing that would be number one, a place of like vulnerability for her, but like, it's not in fashion now to like confront a woman, I think. I think mm. it's more to have the upper hand by not acknowledging it and saying, oh, this didn't affect my relationship. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. So yeah, my sexual debut was rooted in harming someone else um, for my own validation in the name of like white supremacy and colorism. And the two are cousins. <laughs> white supremacy and colorism but um yeah growth I mean I think teenage girls all do some maybe less than savory things with our sexuality and wield it um in ways that we're not maybe proud of when we look back as adults yeah and especially being like queer and predominantly attracted to black women now like I'm disgusted mm -hmm. that I hurt another black woman um, I don't want to apologize on anyone's behalf or say that it's okay because not necessarily my place but I think that you're miles ahead of a lot of people and awareness and like feeling that I think a lot of people don't even go past that of feeling any remorse yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, but like, I, I don't know, like, there's a part of me that would like, I wish I could go back and reparent myself. Because I think what we don't talk about, like, yes, like, love is love, and people should be with whom they want to be with. But when you're talking about like, two people of different races, particularly black and white, creating this mm -hmm. biracial child and not having the capacity or even um, like knowing about colorism and just saying like, oh, these darker skinned girls are jealous of you because that's what I was taught. Mm. Like You're just perpetuating that harm. Wow. So I don't think people look critically at like interracial relationships, relationships and how that affects biracial children and our perception of ourselves and people's reactions to us um, and how we see the world. Yeah, And absolutely. I don't know if you remember, but in 618... I was going to bring it up, actually. Okay. So yeah, I was going to ask you about that story, actually, from class, if you want to tell it. Yeah, so I hope we're thinking of the same story, but in 618, so. we did this... Um, what was it called? It was an exercise where it was like a... Likert type scale, like strongly agree, agree, mm -hmm. neutral, disagree, strongly disagree. And we were asked certain questions about um, sexuality related topics, like how we feel about non-monogamy and other like abortion stuff like that. One of the questions was um, interracial relationships are completely inherently, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. And um, the entire exercise, everyone had someone else's survey, mm -hmm. right? Um, so they didn't know who was answering. It just so happened that I got my own survey and I was the only person in the classroom who strongly disagreed with the fact that 
um, interracial relationships are like completely fine. Mm -hmm. And my reason for that is because of my positionality as a biracial child, um, Mm -hmm. the child of um, black father, white mother, because um, no matter how prepared you think you are to engage in discussions with your child about race, regardless of your race or your child's race or races, um, unless you have educated yourself on all these systems of oppression, including like colorism, you are going to do harm to your child by not telling them about um, like the experiences that they might have navigating um, these systems with other people. Because again, I was told that dark-skinned black girls were jealous of me because I was light-skinned with curly hair and that's just how it was. Can you imagine the type of harm and neglect (laughs) that I have, you know, imparted? Or at the very least, not having these friendships with dark-skinned women in a place that like understood like what they were going through and holding space for their aversion to the privilege that light-skinned women were receiving. So um, I think one of your next questions, if I could go back and do anything um, uh, or change anything about my sexual debut, um, I wouldn't have done any of that, not because Mm -hmm. I regret sex itself, but I hate that it was rooted in my need to reclaim my privilege under colorism and Mm. by extension harm another black woman, particularly a dark skinned black woman. Mm -hmm. Do you think a lot of the harm done to biracial children, specifically black and white is done at the hands of white women? Um, well, biracial, assuming that the mother is white and right. uh, And also assuming that the father is black. I think it's both parents because we can talk about like white women fetishizing, um, you know, men of other color, particularly black men, but we're not talking about the black men who enjoy the privileges of that fetishization and how mm. they benefit from like receiving that sex and whatnot and creating like their interracial family. But like there is a black parent in the household. Why mm. haven't they educated themselves about colorism and all these systems so that they can, you know, make that experience a bit more knowledgeable for their children. Mm-hmm. Like the onus is also on the other parent. Mm-hmm. And this goes, we're talking about like straight folks. Like it doesn't matter what gender you are. If you are in an interracial relationship, it, it is my belief that it's your obligation to not only understand the culture, but also all of the systems of privilege and oppression that come with it so that you can have those conversations with your children. And people think that they're already doing that, but they're not at all. So, um, and I think we're in a space currently still where um, both parties in the interracial relationship get defensive um, Mm. when confronted on the fact that they're not doing their job Mm. and that it's impacting their children. And also just to say, I feel like the predominant image that we get when we think of interracial relationships are like a white woman with a man of color. Um, But that's not the only type, obviously. And I think that's the the um setup that I see represented a lot but not the only one yeah and I think most people in interracial relationships think their relationship exists in a vacuum and Mm. that politics and all these isms and phobias did not inform their relationship and their ideas about what is desirable when in reality like no one escapes white supremacy unscathed at all so um and all the other isms and supremacies so 
yeah, um, if I could go back, I would reparent myself, educate myself so that that would not have been something I did. Mm-hmm. So. And you can always reparent yourself now. I love inner child work. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I wanted to ask you too, if you wanted to speak about if you had any like pertinent experience um, of a sexual debut into sex work. Yeah. So um, I will speak about the point at which I decided to participate in sex work. So Mm -hmm. nothing that had to do with like coercion or anything like that or so like when I turned 18, um, this goes back um, to your question that I had highlighted about um, the first time you used a sex toy. So Mm. like that relates to that. So um, I, being the brand new sex worker that I was went on to seeking arrangement (laughs) (laughs) to find a sugar daddy because that was the first form of sex work that I was comfortable participating in because to be Mm -hmm. honest like I don't have the stage presence of a of a stripper (laughs) and I don't have because I'm so private the boldness of a cam model so Mm -hmm. um, I deal more with sex work that's like the interpersonal relationship so like the girlfriend experience um, Mm -hmm. or baby or even just full service sex work so Mm -hmm. um, again being 18 being on seeking arrangements I um, the first person I ever um, the first client I ever had was this white man and he Mm -hmm. took me to his um, place in Woodstock New York because oh. I was school out there at the time um in that area and um the first thing like he did was like he used a vibrator on me like mm-hmm. the Hitachi vibrator and like that was the quickest I ever came in my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like that's like a much better introduction into sex work than like I think most sex workers have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is not to say that it's always glamorous and like a positive experience, but Absolutely. that was like my first time. And then also when you're a sex worker, you're sort of, I don't want to say like detached from the experience, but because it's more work than personal, um, mm-hmm. there's the separation and you're observing. And in my head, as if I was like a researcher, like collecting data, mm-hmm. like during <laughs> the experience. Um, so yeah. And like, yeah, I think that's why I continued to engage in sex work because that first experience wasn't um, it wasn't as bad as media makes it out to be, which is not mm-hmm. to dismiss the bad experiences that different types of sex workers have. But right, do you think you would have um, continued on differently if your first experience hadn't been um, like that one? I would have continued um, to, you know be in sex work because Mm -hmm. I know this is such a controversial statement and it Mm -hmm. in my opinion it shouldn't be but I knew I wanted to be a sex worker from a very young age right I mean a lot of people want to be a certain profession from a young age (laughs) well no because when you think about like um career readiness like how do you like I think a big question about um younger folks who are interested in sex work like how do you gauge that topic without it being like exploitative right because Mm -hmm human trafficking and sex work shouldn't be conflated but in my opinion like minors technically even if it's for survival like there is a element of exploitation in there um Mm -hmm. so 
Um, I think that's another topic in sex ed that needs to be addressed. But um, I, anyways, I knew I wanted to um, be in the field of sex work um, from a young age. So I had already done my research and mm-hmm. uh, figured out what was and was not for me. So nothing would have changed. How do you feel on one end of the spectrum of kind of a rise in media, social media, particularly of um, extremely successful sex workers, either like them glamorizing um, their profession and on the other end, people who um, tell, um, you know, prospective sex workers to not do it and to not start at 18 um, because of the experiences they've had? So I have two answers to that question. And that goes back to like one of the things we discussed in class, the importance of media literacy. Mm-hmm. So like not taking t- not taking for granted what you see in the media or in social media as just the truth, big capital mm-hmm. T, the truth. Like there's multiple sides to it. Some of it is reality, but mm-hmm. reality for some people is better than others, especially when you get into like the hierarchy and like, types of privilege people can have within Mm -hmm. sex work. Um, So being able to differentiate um, what is truth, what isn't truth, and um, how your experience in sex work can differentiate from what is represented. Um, Yeah, because people should be able to talk about their experiences, whether good or bad on social Mm -hmm. media about Mm -hmm. sex work. and they shouldn't be censored, but that media literacy piece is important. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is why sex workers should be in the classroom doing sex education, specifically talking about sex work because um, they are able to, we are able to dispel um, some of the myths, the realities, mm-hmm. and give an accurate representation. Absolutely, and for those listening, do you mind um, describing what the hierarchy is? Yeah. So in my opinion, the concept of the hierarchy is underdeveloped. I think okay. so in 2022, like so, so last year, we're recording this in 2023, but there was um, a researcher, she's doing her PhD in UCLA, it's Kimberly mm-hmm. Fuentes. Um, oh, I think I've heard of her actually. She um, published an article um, describing some of the elements of the hierarchy and it encompasses some of the types of privilege and oppression amongst different types of sex workers. So um, the idea being that those doing street level sex work have um, more experiences with oppression than those who are um, separated from like direct client services, like um, people who are in porn whatnot, which is not to say that once you're at the top of the hierarchy, you no longer have oppression because as sex workers, you are still marginalized, but what that um, model, the hierarchy, doesn't acknowledge is like race and mm-hmm. other aspects of identity. And like, fingers crossed, if I were to do a PhD, I could address that and come up with a more comprehensive model that addresses not only the privilege and oppression within sex work and sex worker collectives, but also um, those with different identities within sex work. That would be awesome. Yeah. And I am speaking it into existence for you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, like, again, I don't need to be the only one who does this work, um, like doing research and coming mm-hmm. up with like interventions that center sex workers, but I would like to be a part of building that body of knowledge. And even within people who do full service sex work, if I'm 
correct there is even a hierarchy with that as well correct like yeah there yeah because like health service sex work you're like actually like engaging in sex like there, there's not the separation of like oh this is just a video mm -hmm. um or um you know strippers like this is just a performance like on a stage um you are actually having sex with clients those who are working on the street versus mm -hmm. those who um are able to um, conduct most of their vetting online or escort or the girlfriend experience mm -hmm. and there's going to be a huge disparity in their, their experiences and how they get treated so mm -hmm. and there's also like this phenomenon of like sex work becoming more I don't want to say prevalent but like more people wanting to engage in it because they're seeing the glamorous sides of it more people who come with, from privileged backgrounds wanting mm -hmm. to engage in it and obviously their experience is going to be different from someone who's doing it for survival absolutely so yeah i recommend everyone looking into it because i believe it's a pretty visual um representation of the concept yeah it's kind of it looks like the food pyramid <laughs> but don't when you look at it don't take it as a be-all end-all representation of privilege and oppression with sex worker collectives mm -hmm. um because there's still work to be done on how to conceptualize experiences within sex work and what that looks like for all of us yes absolutely continue to listen to what sex workers are saying about their experience yes and put us well first of all pay us to be yes. in professional spaces to talk about our own experiences as well as um decide what interventions are best for us because even being within social work like they already have enough problems but the amount of whorephobia that i encounter in social work spaces even in human the human sexuality program sex work gets put on the back burner and talked about as if like okay we can add that in there but like we can't talk to kids about it when in reality like some people their parents are sex workers mm -hmm. so I think one of your questions is like how young or when is the right age to talk about sexuality? Um, the moment folks start asking questions, mm -hmm. they deserve an age appropriate answer that makes the world a safer space for the most marginalized identity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, sometimes when I speak to my um, students who are high school and middle school age, they ask me kind of about an internal condom or a female condom and um, I answer their questions. I say, why do some people use this? I, a lot of people who use those are sex workers because they can keep it in before um, the encounter and it um, eliminates the need to negotiate the other person wearing a condom. Yeah, kids deserve age-appropriate answers. And like you said, their parents might engage in sex work. Yeah, and thank you, number one, for doing that work <laughs> and, and mentioning sex workers. And also, I think um, within sex education, whether it's the parent doing it or a formal sex work, uh, a formal sex educator, getting comfortable with discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, in this current, you know, moment, people are uncomfortable with the idea that sex is a form of labor, mm -hmm. whether it's you know within the confines of marriage, like. <laughs> technically like yes we talked about that. there's very Sorry. little difference there's very little difference between spouses and sex workers mm -hmm. right in the ways that they navigate their relationship but like acknowledging that um it can be a job mm -hmm. um i think is the first step 
and leaning into that discomfort so that we can move towards a place where this isn't an issue and people are safe and performing the labor to survive or even if it's just for fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we talked about a TikTok that I sent you about trophy wives are, they might not think of it themselves as doing sex work, but on in very real ways are performing the exact same labor and being compensated for that labor. Very much so. And again, like this goes back to allowing people to define their sexuality for themselves. Like if they don't want to identify as a sex worker, then Mm -hmm. they don't have to. But there should be a space to unpack the ways in which relationships, um, different types of relationships carry similarities to sex work. Mm-hmm. relationships are transactional there's nothing yes. wrong with that it's simply exactly. true very yeah. much so and i know you were talking about um wanting to know you were interested in wanting to go into the field of sex work at a young age mm-hmm. when was your sexual awakening did it maybe coincide with that maybe it was before people aren't gonna like this answer but the answer is the answer so um do you remember um, the show with Hugh Hefner and his like three girlfriends. Mm-hmm. I forget the actual name of it. Um, Girl Next think... Door. Something Girl like that Next with Door. Holly Madison. And... Yeah, yeah, those three. So like, I wanted that. Not, not that per se, but like the idea that I could um, capitalize off of desire. Mm-hmm. I wanted that. Obviously, those weren't the words that I were I was using at the tender age of like six or seven whenever that show came out but Mm -hmm. I knew that that was something that I wanted to do and when people blame media on people's reasoning for wanting to become a sex worker okay what does that I mean people watch basketball and want to become a basketball player but you're not mad about it because it's not tied to some moral qualm you have about basketball yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. like you get all these military advertisements like we made them army strong. Why can't sex workers have advertisements? Um, I, I think that being in the army is a lot more exploitive than being a sex worker. I definitely agree because um, number one, you're using your body to impose harm on others for resources overseas. Whereas sex workers, we're usually done doing some type of healing work. Mm-hmm. Sex workers are healers. Mm-hmm. We're, ther- we're, we're therapists. We're mm-hmm. educators. We're magical. <laughs> I agree. And also, I um, want to hear your opinion because I hear a lot of people in leftist spaces shitting on um, patrons of sex workers and calling them gross and creepy. And mm-hmm. I, based on my perspective, informed by other sex workers, that I know. I think that's a really misguided opinion. I agree with that. Now, I will say that there is a way that some people interact with sex workers oh, that can be coded as creepy, oh, right? Definitely. But um, I think that, again, that just is stigma. Mm-hmm. And if we were to look at sex workers as educators and therapists and all these other things, we would see that a lot of people learn social skills and they learn um like sexual skills as well with sex workers right Mm -hmm. and if we were to normalize that concept um there'd be less stigma against people who purchase sex yeah or those sexual services 
Because I'm even thinking of um, like sexual surrogacy or surrogacy. Yeah, I forget that word. Too. Yeah, it like folks predominantly who have um, some sort of like intellectual um, disability. Mm -hmm. um, they will have like a surrogate um, teach them like how to engage like within a relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that is another space where sex workers can lend their expertise. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yes. destigmatize the purchasing of sex as I well. Agree. I agree. I think it's counterproductive to to shame people who are purchasing sex. Because people think of like sex as something that should just come naturally. And while that is true, like there are skills that you can have within sex and people don't look at sex workers and also like sex educators who aren't sex workers in general as um, being lewd for having mm -hmm. those spaces to like learn how to suck dick or mm -hmm. <laughs> like it is yeah. a skill that you can learn how to have and if y'all weren't so caught up on you know your own ego or insecurities you might learn something <laughs> yeah I agree sex is a skill sex is a skill that you can practice I'm even thinking of people who want to have their first experience um, with a similar gender hiring a sex mm -hmm. worker exactly and I wish that could be done without the stigma attached to it that shame me too i hope we're moving in that direction i hope so Fingers i can't say for sure yeah. <laughs> okay so you answered a lot of the questions that we have just in our conversation do you remember the first time you watched porn and what your reaction was to it yes so porn was very didactic to me um mm -hmm because I started watching porn after like my sexual debut, the story that I shared with, mm -hmm. you know, the threesome and all that. Um, mm -hmm. So I didn't experience pleasure until I started masturbating specifically mm -hmm. to porn. And it was this video, oh, I wish I remember her name, but like it was this white woman, she had red hair and she was like mm -hmm. masturbating and I just like followed her lead. And that was my yeah. first orgasm. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, exactly. Our porn um, can totally be a learning tool. It sure is. Yeah. Shout out to porn performers who do that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Ethical porn performers, to be specific. Yes. And it's not necessarily the porn performers that we're speaking of being unethical, but the, yeah. the uh, industry itself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember Pornhub attempted to do a bit of a media literacy thing where they were um flagging videos and saying like this is not like representational of like how a sexual encounter might be and like providing resources and Pornhub is not a ethical entity but I thought that was a cool step I mean they are trying to because I remember I think it was in 2021 that they deleted any video that wasn't from like a verified account to like mm -hmm. prevent like revenge porn and un like other unethical activity i think they're moving toward that space but that's um good. that still isn't as good as purchasing your porn directly, directly from someone who made it yes yeah mm -hmm. so i want to wrap up by asking you if you have any words of wisdom for future generations of people having sex but also i want to ask from the lens of um, a sex worker, any words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on to civilians or non-sex <laughs> uh, Words of wisdom. Um, hmm. I think that 
sex in and of itself is a space where you should be allowed to mess up and make mistakes mm -hmm. and learn and grow and not have all the answers and take breaks and drink water <laughs> <laughs> and you know um and it doesn't have to be something that is transformative it can be but it's not something that has to change who you are it's just another experience mm -hmm. um to get to know yourself as well as another person if you want that and um, I encourage people to go at their own pace mm -hmm. and, you know, in their process of unlearning harmful messages, um, repairing that harm directly with the people that they harmed. And um, in terms of sex work, um, talk to a sex worker before you think about getting into a specific industry. Um, just to get a realistic idea of what you might be getting into and there should no be there should be no shame or um, negative association attached to that and um, like any other job it can be a career or just a phase I think within queerness I like the idea of reclaiming the idea of something be a, being a phase because some people say like oh this is just a phase to invalidate like what someone is going through, but there's a lot of power in claim reclaiming the temporary. Mm. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> I hope I that was a good answer. Great place to end. Thank you so much for coming on, Kalia. I think this episode is going to be very informative and important for a lot of people listening. And thank you for giving us a long ass episode. You all better enjoy it. <laughs> I feel, I don't feel bad, but what I will say, I like, I was bad. like, I hope she knows she's getting a lot of information out of me. Mm -hmm. I don't have any social media because again, I'm Scorpio and very private, but um, if anyone has any questions, you can, I mean, or if you just want to talk to me, mm -hmm. um, then you can hit me up at K r-g-a-r-d-n-e-r -E at widener.edu i'm going to give you my university email because i'm claiming that academic energy as you should and yeah thank you for having me i really appreciate it it was so good to see you it was good to see you too keep in touch yes absolutely bye hi hi if you've made it this far and finished that amazing episode you know that I'm about to give you the same spiel that I do at the end of every episode. If you like what you're listening to, let me know. You can do that by sending me an email at sexualdebutpodcast at gmail.com or you can send me a DM on Instagram at the sexual debut podcast. If you have any topics that you'd like to see covered, if you know of anyone that would like to be a guest on the show or you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, you can let me know at those um, places as well, the Instagram and my email. But thank you again for tuning in. If you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome. And if you leave a good review, I will maybe read it on the podcast. You can also write me on Spotify. Thanks so much for listening. Love y'all.